families is a strong economy. A strong economy means more jobs for Albertans, and it means more money for health, for education, and for supports for the most vulnerable. And a strong economy means more opportunities for everyone. Four years ago, we lowered Alberta's corporate income tax rate to 8%, 30% lower than any other province. We have no payroll tax, capital tax, or health premium. And Albertans' tax-exempt income amounts are higher than any other province. In fact, workers and businesses would pay at least $20 billion more if we had the same tax system as any other province. Maintaining this advantage is a necessity. Alberta needs growth to create good jobs and opportunities. Alberta needs investment to diversify its economy and reduce emissions. And Alberta needs to keep more of what they, Albertans need to keep more of what they earn as inflation continues to eat away at their spending power. Our government will ensure that Alberta and Albertans have exactly what they need. This spring, we promise to keep taxes low and ensure no government can increase your personal taxes or taxes on job creators without the approval from Albertans through a referendum. We're delivering on that promise today. If passed, the Alberta Taxpayer Protection Amendment Act will shield families and businesses from future tax hikes. The act already bans the introduction of a provincial sales tax without a referendum. We will, in, what we do, will do with this act is strengthen that. With our amendments, increases to corporate and personal taxes will not happen without Albertans' permission. This includes increases through the reduction of personal income tax brackets or through decreases in the basic personal spousal and equivalent to spouse credit amounts. Thanks to this legislation, Everyone from single parents to entrepreneurs will have an extra dose of certainty so that they can budget and save for what truly matters to them. Their hard work will get the respect that it deserves. And let me be clear, we're not pursuing this course in the hope that it translates into growth. Rather, we're doing it because we know it will. It's already obvious <clears throat> our approach to taxes is paying off. Many banks and forecasters expect that Alberta will lead the country in growth over the next two years. Venture capital investment is on the rise here even as it declines in the rest of the country. Annual population growth is the highest it has been since 1981. And last fiscal year, corporate income tax revenue hit a new record of $8.2 billion. That's more than the previous government brought in with a substantially higher tax rate. Between these measures and red tape reduction, our government is sending an unmistakable message to the world. Alberta is open for business, and in a competitive and unstable global economy, we're serious about creating jobs and long-term prosperity. I'd like to invite Minister Nate Horder to elaborate further. Well, thank you, Premier. Good afternoon, everyone. With the lowest overall taxes in the country, Alberta's tax advantage over other jurisdictions is clear. It's important we do what we can to protect that advantage, which is why we made the Alberta Taxpayer Protection Amendment Act 2023 the first bill on our legislative agenda. If passed, it will protect Albertans and Alberta businesses against future income tax hikes and help retain our province's status as one of the lowest tax jurisdictions in all of North America. Our low tax environment is a major reason why we're seeing more people from other provinces and countries choosing to make Alberta their home and more job creators and innovators choosing to invest in our province. Currently, the Alberta Taxpayer Protection Act prohibits introducing a general sales tax without a referendum, and the amendments we're proposing through Bill 1 would expand that legislation further, providing more certainty to Albertans, Alberta businesses, and prospective newcomers and investors alike. 
Bill 1 would help us continue to roll out the welcome mat for new investment and make sure that Albertans continue to keep more of their earnings. It would set the stage for even more economic growth, building on our nation-leading economic performance, and driving job creation and diversification in Alberta's economy. It would assert our competitiveness as one of the most business-friendly jurisdictions on the continent and allow Albertans and Alberta business owners to spend more of their hard-earned dollars on the things that really matter. Thanks to the job creation tax cut, Alberta's general corporate income tax rate is now the lowest in the country by a wide margin. And with it, we're generating the highest corporate income tax revenues this province has ever seen. That speaks to the importance of preserving Alberta's low tax environment, which this legislation commits to. The Alberta Taxpayer Protection Amendment Act represents a major step forward in securing Alberta's future, and I'm pleased to introduce it with the Premier today. Thank you, and I would now like to turn it over to Shauna Feth, President and CEO of Alberta Chambers of Commerce. Thank you, Premier, Minister. Uh, a competitive tax environment has been a pillar of Alberta's strong economic performance and prosperity for decades. There isn't anything business wants more than certainty in an environment where they can compete and grow. Enacting Bill 1 will safeguard our tax competitiveness and together with the provincial fiscal framework, provides certainty going forward for our province's entrepreneurs who have built one of the most prosperous jurisdictions around the world. So on behalf of our local chamber network and the more than 20,000 businesses we represent, we thank Premier Smith and Minister Horner and this government for their leadership to ensure Alberta remains one of the best places to invest and grow business for years to come. Thank you. Perfect. And we'll head into our media Q&A. Uh, just a few reminders for those on the line that any responses given about uh, Bill 1 are embargoed until that legislation is introduced at approximately 4 p.m. today. And any responses given by the Premier regarding the throne speech are embargoed until approximately 3 p.m. today once that speech begins in the House. Uh, with that, we'll take one question and one follow-up. And we'll start off here in the room and then go over to the phones. If I could see a show of hands. And we'll start with you, Lisa. Hi. Uh, thanks for taking questions. Well, I'm wondering why not include protection from the indexation in this bill? What was behind that choice? Well, we wanted to make sure that people knew that the ta taxes would not ever go up. And the main ways in which taxes go up are because of uh, not only the rate, but also the basic personal exemptions, as well as the, uh, the, the, the brackets. And so that's the level of protection that we wanted to, to provide. We also have a pretty strict um, budget uh, rule that requires us to only increase our operating spending year over year by the rate of inflation and a, a surplus management strategy. And so having the, the, the flexibility, I think, on the, the issue if something happens in the future to make sure that we can maintain balanced budget. I think that that was one of the considerations, but we wanted people to know that with the taxes where they are, are now, they, we won't ever be adjusting downward unless there's a referendum. You know, critics will say that a de-indexation de from inflation is kind of a de facto uh, tax raise. So you're saying that's still on the table if we come into times where our surplus is shrinking, or we end up in deficit, that's still on the table as an option for your dollar. Well, I have to look at our, our history, and our history was that there was a, a point where we ended up running a $14 billion deficit, and the government of the time had to make the decision to allow for a period of time for, uh, for, the, uh, for the, the rates to stay where they were. 
And so I, I think that that is a tool that in uh, extreme circumstances it remains um, uh, as part of this act. But we want people to know that once we've established the levels, they aren't going to be adjusted you know, unless there's a referendum. So the rate is going to stay where it is, and the basic personal exemption will never be lower, and the, ba the tax brackets will never be lower unless there's um, approval through a referendum. Perfect. And yeah. Thank you, Mayor. Um, first of all, Trump's speech, uh, you know, there were many, many different things that were mentioned in that that were not, like, not a very big surprise. But high-speed rail, we're back at it. Edmonton, Calgary, uh, it seems every 10 years or so we talk about that link. Reports have been made in the 70s, the 80s, mm -hmm. the 90s, the 2000s, multiple governments. Is it going to be different under your government? I think it's a, a matter of time. I'm glad to see that previous governments have taken it seriously and even set aside land and started assembling uh, the, the corridors to make it happen. And so when I look at where we're at right now, where we're approaching 5 million people and probably will be by the end of 2025, and then looking at the projections if this growth continues, where we could potentially double our population sometime around 2050, when, when we're on track to be a 10 million person province with six or seven million people in that corridor between Calgary and Edmonton and uh, Red Deer, plus draw on, you know, an, a one hour drive around each one of those, when you have that kind of population, it all of a sudden becomes economic. We're seeing that now with other rail projects that are happening in eastern Canada and elsewhere. Plus it would allow us, I think, to, uh, to showcase hydrogen technology because we already have a number of uh, hydrogen projects underway. CP is converting their locomotives to, to hydrogen for freight. The um, uh, Quebec project was a passenger rail project that was also hydrogen. So I think now the time has come. So we have to start planning for it, knowing that we're going to continue growing. Uh, there's a word we, we've been saying, and I think it's for a lot of us it's quite surprising, but we've been saying this word referendum uh, all the time, today on the anniversary of the 1995 referendum as well. Mm. Can we talk about the Alberta Pension Plan? It's unclear, and your minister also uh, over the weekend talked about a high-level feeling. So are we going to have a referendum on an Alberta pension plan or maybe potentially? It's, I, I think it's unclear for me. Well, I, th I think we have to take information in from a lot of different points. And I think that that confluence of information will give us the idea of whether or not Albertans are in favor of going to a referendum. So we're hearing in our MLA offices through letters, to the, the letters that have come in. We're hearing on the very speeches that we do, the town halls that we do. Jim Dinning is uh, uh, finished two of his, his public consultations. He's got three more to go. We have our online survey. There's public polling. So we'll be able to get a sense from all of those different sources of whether Albertans want to go to a referendum. We just don't have that answer yet until that, the, the, all of those processes are done. And we'll go to Julia next here. Um, the the throne speech makes mention of motions that will be introduced under the Sovereignty Act. Hmm. What are these motions, and when are they going to be introduced? Well, you know, I hope we don't have to, um, because I have always said that if the federal government steps out of its lane and comes into our constitutional jurisdiction, that we would have to use the, the Sovereignty Act to defend our right to continue to regulate our own way. And we, we got a boost on that from the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court agrees with us that the federal government has to abide the Constitution, that cooperative federalism does not mean they can act unilaterally in our areas of jurisdiction, nor can they use some flimsy pretext in order to invade our jurisdiction. So I feel, uh, I feel like we have 
received a, a really strong endorsement from the, the federal from the from the Supreme Court that the Constitution matters. So the question will be whether or not the federal government abides by that. And we can, I can already tell you things like an aggressive emissions cap on oil and gas, an aggressive emissions cap on methane, an aggressive emissions cap on fertilizer. A clean electricity regs that put an aggressive cap on uh, on uh, or a target of net zero power by 2035. Those are all circumstances that, if they proceed unilaterally, that we would have to uh, defend our constitutional jurisdiction, and we would intend to. So it, the ball's in their court now. I'm, we have a table that has been meeting regularly to see how we can get their goals aligned with ours which is um, carbon neutrality by 2050. And so I'm, I'm still hopeful, especially with the Supreme Court decision, that they'll respect the court, work with us, and we won't have to do that. But we stand by ready to do that because they continue to threaten to bring through unconstitutional laws, and we, um, we, just, we just won't stand for it. And so, sorry, Sam, this is more of a clarification. So there's nothing specific that's been written. It's more so the possibility that motions could generally be introduced. Well, you, it's, uh, I, I was quite specific about the four things I would use it on, and there would be four specific um, motions that would come forward if they took one of those four specific actions, yes. And then my second question is, um, we've heard that you know, you'd love to hear a number from the federal government when it comes mm -hmm. to how much Alberta would get if we were to have an APP. What is the provincial government's role or responsibility in sharing that number when that's introduced? Oh, we absolutely would. I mean, if the federal government came back and had a different number than what we believe the, the law says and what uh, LifeMark has calculated it to be, then um, if, there's, if it's very far apart, if they're not the same, then it would probably go to a court to adjudicate what the, what the law actually says. But absolutely, we want to be transparent on that. People need to know. If, uh, it is, if we do indeed go to a vote on this, they need to know exactly what the transfer would be and then in turn what that would mean for um, benefits increases and what it would mean for contribution reductions. So we, we would be fully transparent on that, yes. And we're going to go take a couple questions from the phone, then we'll come back to the room. Uh, operator, could you put through our first caller, please? David Staples, Edmonton Journal. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Hi, Premier. Um, Hi. The federal government seems to be undergoing kind of a historic meltdown in the last few weeks between um, foreign policy bungles, um, ugly favoritism of certain regions, and vote, public vote-buying schemes. Um, a big mess. How, but yet they still have power, and a lot of it is targeted at us. How can Alberta best weather or survive this federal government? I, th I think um, we've, we've managed to, to try to be as cooperative with the federal government on areas of common interest as we can. We um, signed a, a $24 billion health care agreement. Uh, we worked very well with them during the fire. So cooperative federalism is possible. And uh, at the moment, most of their uh, proposals are just that. They're proposals and they haven't been implemented in law. And I think one of the, uh, w one of the worst pieces of legislation was was just rendered uh, or just declared unconstitutional a couple of weeks ago, and they have to respond to that. So I'm, I'm, I'm deeply troubled that uh, they're playing one region against the other. I mean, their entire carbon tax scheme is pretty much up in smoke now. How can you say to the Supreme Court that you have to assert a federal right to set a, a single price across the entire country and then not do that? that? That seems to me to undermine their own constitutional argument that they made 
in trying to argue for a floor price in the first place. So we're consulting our legal team to see whether or not that can be revisited because if you're not going to apply it equally and fairly, I'm sorry, it, uh, I, I think that, uh, that that's not the spirit of, of why you would give that power to the federal government. So um, we are asking for them to treat us fairly. It shouldn't just be heating oil. It shouldn't just be a, 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 a tax break that's concentrated essentially on one region of the country. I see that British Columbia is now asking for fair treatment. We continue to ask for fair treatment. Scott Moe has asked for fair treatment. Uh, they, if they're going to recognize that their carbon tax is harming people as we get into winter, it's harming every Canadian everywhere, and it's not just one particular fuel type. So I, uh, we've, we've been calling for the carbon tax to be scrapped completely, and this is exactly why, because as it gets higher and higher, it's just going to cause more and more harm to the people who are most vulnerable and least, like, least able to pay. And you can't just be carving out exceptions. I, I just don't think that that would pass the constitutional test. And on Friday, yeah, on Friday, Premier, you had an interesting back and forth with an audience member in Calgary where you made some arguments about just the difficulty of net zero by 2035 in terms of uh, bringing in nuclear hydro and the economic reality of batteries, how they how they just don't essentially work to power um, a modern economy, especially in a cold climate or anywhere else. That message that you put out there, do you think it's sinking in with your opponents and, and specifically with the Trudeau Liberals? Are, are you making any headway and getting them to uh, realize um, the validity of, of those statements? Well, I think they... Um you know, I'm, I live in hope that uh, that uh, reality will set in. I, I'm just <laughs> astonished that, that people have forgotten how long it takes to build things. Um, when, you, when you think of all of the major projects that we've had, I think even the Cancer Center was a 10-year project. The uh, Trans Mountain Pipeline, I mean, how many decades did that take from conception to actual construction? Uh, when you look at the Site C Down was the example that I gave. They started talking about that in 1954, and I think it's been 15 years under construction, and it's only going to be 11 megawatts, 1,100 megawatts of power. So I think people have forgotten how long it actually takes to build things when it comes to the regulatory process, the environmental permitting, the uh, consultation with landowners and First Nations, not to mention when we're in a uh, skills shortage, getting people, you've got uh, supply chain issues. And that's the reality that, that we're trying to make the federal government accept, that we can achieve something in a 27-year time horizon to 2050. I have every confidence of that, especially if we've all set the same target. But to try to, to rush this and get a 2030 target or even a 2035 target, it, it's, just, it's, not achi it's just simply not achievable. And we, we, have to, we have to be realistic about that because when you, when you end up with, with power outages, as we just saw actually in, uh, in uh, the old area over the, over the weekend, the, and we've had eight uh, uh, similar instances in the last year. I mean, what our number one job is making sure people have reliable power. And right now that means bringing on more base load. And we have to do that in the most efficient possible with technology that exists today that we know is dispatchable and we know that will work. So there's nothing that succeeds like in, in giving that, that uh, reality check other than these kinds of instances. So we're, we're going to use this as an opportunity to advance that, and I, I hope we can convince them. Thank you, David. Uh, operator, can you put through our next caller, please? Rick Bell, Calgary Sun. Uh, good afternoon, um, Premier. Um, 
We saw the, and you've already alluded to it, the Trudeau government making allowances for Atlantic Canada with regards to the carbon tax on uh, home heating fuel. Uh, how, how will you use that and how hard will you go at the feds to, who said they would never do carbos because that would be bad for the federation, um, to get uh, some kind of consideration for Alberta on the clean electricity regulations? Well, first of all, um, I would say that to have a liberal minister say, just vote for more liberals and you might succeed in being able to get a car vote, I think that's a question you should put to Randy Boissonneau and George Chahal, since they are liberals in Alberta, and see if they're going to stand up and say that we need to see fairness in our province. And then when it comes to the clean electricity regs, it's exactly the point that we were making. Every single province finds themselves in a different situation because of... Uh, past history and geography, and as long as we're aligned on the overall target of 2050, I think that they should work with us. That's the reason why we're meeting. And uh, supplementary question. In, in the throne speech, I know this was asked before, but I still don't have a clear idea of what exactly it means in real people talk. When you say if the federal government continues down its path, you will introduce several motions under the Sovereignty Within the United Canada Act detailing provincial initiatives and legislations necessary to protect Alberta. What does that actually look like in real terms? Like, what do you actually do in the legislature if that happens? Like, what what does it look like in rolling it out? Well, again, you'll, we'll have to see whether or not it's even needed because it depends on how far the federal government goes in trying to force these regulations on us. Um, if they don't force these regulations on us, then we continue down our path with our, that we've outlined in our energy um, development and emissions reduction plan, which works on bringing on new technologies on a time frame that's reasonable to get to carbon neutrality by 2050. So I'm, I'm just hopeful that that's where we can get to. And if not, then we will make sure that we continue on that pathway. We're not going to let the federal government interfere with our investment um, attraction and our support of our industry in getting to that 2050 target. So it depends. It's their move. I mean, I have to see what they do first. And if they're willing to work with us, then we'll continue to work collaboratively with them. If not, then we're going to make sure that we have reliable electricity, affordable electricity, and that our energy industry is not shut in. So we'll do whatever it takes to make that happen. Thank you. And we're going to take one more question from the phones here and then come back in person for our last one or two questions. Operator, could you put through our next caller, please? Chris Barco, Calgary Herald. Hi, it's a question for the Premier. Premier, what are your government's plans to fix or broadly reform the electricity system in Alberta, and what's the timeline of any reform? Well, the, the pause comes off renewables at the end of February, and so uh, and we won't be extending that. So um, I know that there have been some who have suggested that we would, but we're not. We're working towards that as a, a hard timeline so that the rules are in place and uh, solar and wind know exactly what the, uh, the parameters will be for investing in our province. But along the way, we've discovered a number of other things that uh, need to be addressed. Uh, the, the market for electricity is clearly broken. To see um, what is called the regulated rate option go up to 32 cents a kilowatt hour when the regulated rate is something that the most vulnerable citizens are on, that's just unacceptable. So we'll be reforming how the regulated rate option works. We'll be addressing issues of the escalating cost in distribution and transmission lines, which now make up the majority of the bill. 
and we'll also be giving clear guidance to the solar and wind industry about where the go zones are for development. So those those things will, will all come together as a package. I believe that our electricity minister is in some final stages of consulting on some of his proposals, and I suspect it will come forward to, to Cabinet either at the end of this year or early next year, and then we'll, we'll un unroll it all before the, um, the, uh, the pause ends at the end of February. And just to follow up, what kind of changes might you consider on market structure, and what would you do to actually address the issue of the prices rising due to uh, economic withholding? Mm -hmm. Well, we've heard that uh, a day-ahead market would probably address the issue of economic withholding. Um, we have also um, uh, we also know that if we're going to call something a regulated uh, rate, it, it, it's a, it gives a false sense of security to people. So we'll, we'll very likely abandon that terminology and talk about variable rates versus um, fixed rates. And there may even have to be some recognition that if you're signing up for a variable rate contract, you have to sign off understanding that you know that it's volatile so that people know that they're not protected. So th those are a couple of things that I think we, we, we will need to do. I know that there's a, a number of different uh, demand-side measures that the minister is looking at as well to see um, how we might be able to make the, the market respond when we end up with uh, some of the, the tight supply. And we also uh, believe that we may have to de-risk some of these long-term investments in baseload power um, in a way that was discussed years before about um, uh, trying to find some mechanism to ensure that those who are dispatchable are able to get, to get paid for that benefit. So those are all the things that we're looking at right now. Perfect. And we'll take one more question from the room here. Uh, Catherine, did you still have your question? We'll go with you. And yeah. Yeah, so on that um, expansion of the base flow capacity, you say it needs to uh, more than double in the coming decades mm -hmm. as you're bringing in reform to ensure ample natural gas generated electricity, but you've also said in the face of these clean energy regs, nobody's building these power plants. So what type of regulation would change that? Well, we'll, we'll have to de-risk it. I mean, we're, we're going to have to make sure that we, we build baseload power and what's available in our market in a, a rapid way is, uh, is natural gas with the best efforts towards doing carbon capture utilization and storage. I mean, I, I think we're at 65% right now is the, is the uh, way the technology is working and being able to capture. I heard it could be as high as 80%, but it can't be 95%, which is what the federal government has said. So we need to get moving on those kinds of contracts very soon. So once we have finished the consultation, we'll be, we'll be working with the industry to make sure that that baseload power comes on stream. And on Bill 1, California did something similar, and <laughs> they're going broke all over the place. So what's, what's going to stop that from happening? Are you introducing new taxes, um, bringing back the de-indexing? I guess, you know, I, I, I see it a bit differently. I, I mean, I know that there are some who believe that you can just keep on increasing taxes forever and it increases revenue. And it's we've actually ha seen that experiment happen in Alberta. The NDP increased the corporate income tax rate and corporate tax revenue went down. We decreased the corporate tax rate and corporate tax revenue went up. Because when you create an environment where people want to, want to come here, start businesses, you actually end up benefiting from tax cuts. You end up benefiting from having a low tax environment. And we're very proud that we are the lowest tax environment in Canada 
um, by a long shot, and also lower than 44 U.S. jurisdictions when, with their combined state, uh, state and federal level. So we anticipate it'll, it'll be the same thing, that uh, you don't necessarily end up realizing more revenues by, by increasing the rates, and that's why we're able to offer that level of certainty. I, I'm, I'm expecting that we'll continue uh, to attract people as we have over the last year. Whatever it takes to be able to get natural gas plants built. I mean, right now, uh, no one is, is offering up a, a large-scale natural gas because of the uncertainty that's been created. So we're going to talk to the industry about what it is they need to create that certainty. It doesn't surprise me. I mean, you've always telling them that they'll go to jail in 2035 if they don't reach their target. There's no board of directors that's going to approve a gas plant under those circumstances. So we have to make sure that they know that if they're going to be provi providing power to our market, that their CEO isn't going to go to jail starting as a starting point. So those are the kind of things that we need to talk to the industry about. Perfect. And that will wrap up today's announcement. But we'll see you all back here in about half an hour at 1 o'clock. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. everybody.